You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that systematically breaks down every episode of The Sopranos. We are back together again, the four of us, to talk about season two, episode one, Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office. The air date was January 16th, 2000. The season one finale was April 4th, 1999. So this was a pretty quick turnaround by prestige TV standards. Thank God. Game of Thrones now, we're going to be waiting for three years until three? I feel it's too like long. It, it's too long. Did you guys watch the Emmys or clips of the Emmys? No one watched the Emmys. I completely I didn't missed watch the it. Yeah. The Sopranos weren't nominated. They so. were not. They were not nominated. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The Sopranos, the Emmy speeches still trend on YouTube. The winners, wow. like the victory speeches. But I watched the Emmys because I have no life. How were the hosts? They were funny. Oh, the, Colin Jost. Colin Jost and, uh, and uh, Michael Che. Michael Che. Thank you. But they uh, had Kit Harrington come out to present an award, you know, Jon Snow. Mm -hmm. There was a visible angst in the crowd because it's Jon Snow. People were like twitching for the show. I wonder if they did that back in the day for, for this one. But anyway, before we begin, I thought we would check in with everybody since we finished season one. How's everybody doing? What's going on in your life? My life's pretty boring. I've just been recording demos. So I'm literally in the studio for hours and hours, so I, that's why I might be a little socially awkward because I've been in a booth. You had like a meeting, twelve hours. You had a meeting with a label, right? Yes. How did that go? That went really well. It's kind of like let's keep the conversation going, and oh, they want to hear music, so I have to just work on music. But you have to send them stuff. Yeah. So I've been in a recording booth that I closed the lights, so it's just I've been in the dark for twelve hours every day for the last five days. How do you do this when you're playing on the piano and you put it on the gram? I do you put it, it on out. your piano stand? Yeah, well, I put it right it? on the piano stand, right where you like you can't see me all the way because I make some really ugly faces when I sing. So I've just kind of. Like, I've become very familiar with your shoulder. With my blade. frame, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my nice little collarbone, but that's it. Just and your music. bat emoji. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a new one. I've I've really into like the it. bat. You're, right, you're using it well. What's Thank the you. significance of the UFOs? Where does that come from? I just feel like. I watched that new Sean Penn show, the What's new Sean Hulu Penn? show. Hmm. I don't know what it's called, but hmm. it's the writer who did House of Cards. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's on Hulu, and it's about a space shuttle. So I think the UFO has something to do with that. Pretty boring. Justin, what's up with you? You're, so you're here. Justin I'm was here. Justin resigned last week, but now he's back. Justin won't leave. It's How are things going? What's your status? What's your plan? When did so you... I'm, I'm, I'm moving in a couple of weeks, just under three weeks. This is my, my Michael Jordan uh, baseball sabbatical where I have really <laughs> nothing to do right now. I have a couple of weeks in between jobs, and all I need to do is sell my stuff before I move to uh, the big KY, Kentucky. Are you driving? I'm flying. You're going to fly One-way ticket. You're not going to have a car there, or are you going to buy a car there? I'll probably lease a car there. Lease a car there. Yeah, but I'll be pretty close to work where I'll be walking, so that'll be nice. And have you found a place to live? I have. I have. I just signed the lease yesterday. Nice. Yeah. And how have things been? John John won't talk to me since I, I left our current job. Please. No, I, I put him to work on the first day off. I knew he had nothing left to do, <laughs> so I, I said, I need meme ideas stat. So the meme ideas yeah, are I need coming to pick up the pace. I need to pick up my pace. And John, what's going on with you? You moved. You basically screwed up our entire pot of bing schedule. So what's, oh. what, what's, been, going oh. on? what's been going on uh, with you? I have uh, become a domesticated man as of yesterday. Uh, I got the, to the keys uh, to a lovely apartment. So I'll be living with my girlfriend now. Ooh. Oh, congrats. Same neighbor or a different neighborhood? North. North. Torrance. 
okay. South Redondo area. Is this the first time you lived with her? Yes. Are you a proponent of that, Naya? Like living with somebody before you like go next level? No, I no. moved across the country for work and for someone, and he wanted me to move in. I was like, fuck no. So I got my own little cottage first. So only marriage, and then you move No, in? no, you can live with them before. Before marriage Way, you have to. If you, decide, oh, the, yeah. if you yeah. decide that you're going down the path oh. of marriage, live together first, of right? Of course. Right? Is that a no-brainer? In, in my family, my parents and I, I think the Persian Jewish community or any one of those communities just are really old-fashioned, and that's the way that they think, that you don't move in until you get married, and it just makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. how, how can you, it's kind of like a test drive. Like you would totally. test, test drive a car after you bought it. We actually bought a house together first. So we were like business partners. You bought, before. Wow, we bought a house together first just bold. because it was just timing. I knew we were going to get married. I wasn't ready to propose, but I'm a huge proponent of like, make sure they see everything about you before you go through the ritual yeah. of marriage. So, but it sounds like you're getting close. Good luck. Yeah. To yeah. be continued. And then on the uh, Sopranos Graham side, uh, we for the longest time have been doing starter kits. And this week was the first female starter kit we've created. So I feel like we, the feminists can leave us alone it now. It works Basically, perfectly. Like officially, uh, Sopranos Graham is officially like 2018 now. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> We're in the Me Too era. Yeah. Um, today, it has, it's funny, it's a coincidence that this first female character is actually just about to be introduced in this episode. Yes, and also her birthday was a couple of days ago. Well, we did it on her birthday. So, like, yeah, we're going to be talking about Janice, Ada Turturro. Parvati? Parvati. Parvati. It's a Hindu goddess. Okay, it's not a cheese. Parvati, she's a cheese now? It's a Hindu goddess. Nice for her. Well, she still answers to Janice, Ma, if it makes you more comfortable. Havarti? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love that line. Again, Wait, when, when was that said? I... Carmela's mom. She says, what, is she a cheese now? <laughs> I missed that. Oh, it's a great, it's a great moment. By the way, how much, I hope I'm not alone in this, I heart Carmelo's parents. Yeah. Oh, yeah, both oh of them. Oh, my God. Hugh, both of rest them. in peace. Bring your plate. He's my favorite guy on the show who's not for the long For the longest time, I didn't know his name was Hugh. I thought she was just saying, you, yeah. you, uh -oh. go get this. It's Hugo. Yeah, it's you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Would you let him smoke a cigarette and put it out in your sink? That's the kind of father-in-law that I wished I had. Yeah. Like, I love my father-in-law. But he, he's just a great character. And DeAngelis is their last name. And David Chase's last name is, his given name is DeCesare. So DeCesare and DeAngelis, I, I feel like there's got to be a connection there. He took the prefix of his last name and then he put Angelus, which to me, David Chase was in L.A. when he was working on the show in the beginning before it was a thing. And the reason I know that is because he was listening to KCRW when he was planning for The Sopranos. I just invented, that's where the, the Carmela's maiden name came from. Crazy. I also have a lot of those starter kit Janice qualities already. So that's, yeah. when I saw that, I was like, damn, I almost got them all. Yikes. I love her. Carmela's coming next. Yeah, Carmela. Oh, that's gonna be hard. She's, we got a couple of things. You up gotta do. You we gotta thought Sylvia do the was gonna outfit. be hard, and we delayed yeah. that forever. Sylvia helped with this intro montage. Um, this episode was written by Jason Cahill. It was directed by Alan Coulter. We're familiar with their work. The HBO synopsis is: Season two opens with the aftermath of the federal crackdown. Junior's in jail. Melfi refuses to see Tony. Christopher's expanding into new business ventures. Pussy is still missing. And Tony's adjusting to life as the new boss. 
To complicate matters even more, Tony's free-spirited sister, Janice, arrives to take care of Livia. The title of the show, it's a play on Guy Walks Into a Bar. Quick topic A, the opening sequence. We talked about it off mic for a minute. Frank Sinatra scores the sequence. It's beautifully done. I love it. Just general thoughts will go around the room. Like, what are your feelings? I mean, for me personally, I thought it was... It's one of my favorite season openers of the whole series. I mean, maybe because I love this song. My, this is my father's favorite song, which is very weird. But I love that Carmela, you know, every time we saw her, she was just taking a casserole out of the oven, so it was just the same thing over. One thing that threw me was when I saw Polly having sex with someone. It was just very vulgar, and it just threw me. It, it yeah. wasn't like I didn't expect it. I just didn't really need to see it. But I loved seeing Junior's picture come down and Tony. Like, it was very symbolic and kind of where they've all been for the last, you know, it updated us to where they were. Yeah, it was it was a perfect song title to show the progression from season one to season two. Um, it wasn't an immediate cliffhanger. You know, we talked a little bit in the last episode about how there's no cliffhangers. Um, in today's era of Netflix and binge watching, every single episode always has to end with you wanting more. But in The Sopranos, they don't really take advantage of the the watcher like that and the audience. Um, so it was interesting in that they chose a very good year and it showed the progression of each character where they are now. Um, because you know we're not going straight from season one to season two in chronological order. This some, some time has elapsed and everybody's advanced a little bit. And we can get into each character and how they kind of have evolved into new roles as we watch the episode and discuss it. Yeah, the musical montage without saying the same thing it was just beautiful and it was a nice slow way to slide back into uh, the experience. And like I've mentioned before, this show has it carries on without you watching it and there's this time in between what i did notice was some of the characters have obviously changed you see a, an older aj meadows driving now but the the guys in the mafia haven't changed at all tony's still cheating on his wife polly's still screwing around silvio's still a goof the, with the exception of junior it was like the guys are back to their old usual ways and Welcome back to The Sopranos, which was a good feeling. Which is my question, which I thought it was interesting they picked. It was a very good year, meaning is it just the same over and over? Or is this going to be a better year because now Tony's the boss? Or is it just like an ironic thing to say because it's just going to be the same over and over again for all for yeah. everyone? You know I, I, I took mean? it as it was a very good year. Tony's yeah. the boss. The business seems like they're getting their, their hands into new pots with some securities fraud type stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think it was a very good year for them. Although I don't think a year has elapsed in time since season one to season two, but I, I, I get the, the point that they're trying to make. Time has gone by. Things are, are starting to go well. He's put his enemies at bay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned cliffhangers. The end of this episode is something that I find, especially in watching this, uh, strikingly beautiful. We'll get to it at the very end, but I will submit to you guys now that that to me actually is the ultimate cliffhanger. And, and that's all I'll say, but, uh, it's funny. Most people would say that a lot of the Sopranos is anti cliffhanger and it's sort of like throwaway endings. We'll unpack it. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Uh, and you don't always have to have dialogue. 
You don't always have to have action. Uh, the inaction is where the cliffhanger is kind of. So what I'll say about the opening sequence is that I, I was parsing the order. So it starts with Livia and then it cuts to Tony. And it actually doesn't really cut, everything fades, right? So you go from Livia to Tony to Polly to Raymond Curto back to Tony who gets a Bloomingdale's brown bag full of cash. Is there anything, is there anything to make of the fact that those are the four first four people they're showing? Like, I thought it made sense that Olivia was first. Like, she's the origin, in my opinion. She's the mom. She's the cause of everything with Tony. So the FBI characterizes Tony as a street boss. Any thoughts on that? Like, is he, like, what is, why isn't he the, to, Junior's in jail. I think, well, just because Junior's in jail doesn't necessarily take away the title. Um, Tony's the street boss, meaning he's the boss on the street. He's the acting boss. When, in fact, we know, we know from the beginning that he's, he is really the, the boss of all bosses. Naya, you mentioned Carmela, the two scenes that we see here. The first one, she's got a big grin on her face, like, you know, like the ziti turned out good. Yeah. The second one, like, maybe she overcooked it. Yeah. But I did want to just shout out her hair. It was impeccable. Always. Amazing. Also, for, uh, I when, thought you guys would get a kick yeah. out of that. that is. Also, <laughs> when she turns over and she sees Tony and then she turns back over. Yeah. Powerful. It was so powerful. And also, I know everything of how she feels about him for to set up this whole season. And she almost knows everything. She knows everything. She, he, like, Tony goes in and he takes his shirt off and then he smells his undershirt. She knows. She knows. She, okay. she turned over and then she turned back. Yeah. Right. She totally knows. And then he goes in to lean in later on in the show to give her a kiss. Nothing. And, he, and, she, and pulls she, away. she pulls away. So you know it's coming. Uh, we know what's coming, obviously, but it's set up very nicely and elegantly. Uh, we see Dr. Melfi outside of her motel room. Um, John, did you dive into the Anthony Wayne motel by any chance? Yeah, it was... Uh, Anthony it. Wayne was a Revolutionary War general. He was okay. given the name Mad Anthony by his men. Interesting. The real motel is in Fort Lee, and it's called the Skyview Motel, in case anybody wants to go or check in. That makes sense. I guess that makes sense. I was like, why are we seeing this hotel's name? But it's Anthony. That makes sense. That's funny. I was like, why do we care? Yeah. It's Tony's name. Yeah. Um, Tony's teaching Meadow how to drive. Well, we know that Meadow's a pretty terrible driver from the beginning to the very end. But I mean, learning in a <laughs> suburban is, a, is tough. I don't remember what her car was in the last, last season, season, but she was not she a very a good suburban, parallel parker. Yeah. Quick topic B. Naya, I'm really curious about your take on this. It's the Chris and Adriana scrum when they're together at the bar with Bevilacqua and his buddy. I, th I keep calling them the Bevilacqua brothers. They're not brothers, right? They're just no, friends. No, Sean, Gismonti, and they're Matt Pop and Puff. What are they Sean called? and Matt Chippendale. Chippendale. Bert and Ernie. Um, Pop and Puff, that wasn't it. <laughs> what the fuck with Chris and Adriana? Why did he hit her in public, first of all? I mean, I think that's just how they are. They love and hate each other. They do that all the time. Because Christy's weak in some way that she does it back because she's badass. And then he has to overcompensate. Like, Shut up about that. Why? They're still going to kiss your ass. They don't care if you're junkie. Sit down. Sit down. I hate you fucking pig. Get off me. You fucking whore. Fuck you. Yeah, that's it. Go home. Get my dinner ready. Go make my dinner. Like something to make him not look like an idiot. Because she already just made him look stupid in front of his little buddies. Yeah. She eviscerates him. If she stays at the table, does he hit her back? Does it go? Does it go back and forth, or does it end there? 
I think it ends there because they're in public. And she got up and left. That's why I'm blown away to begin yeah. with. The question I have for the general group is, why were they hanging out with those guys to begin with? Well, Chris is really enjoying being somebody's boss right now. With the, the three-piece suit? This is the, yeah, this is the first time he actually has any point. power. The, first, the, the whole entire first season, he was worried about his arc. Where am I in the totem pole? When Brendan Fallon was named an associate on the news, he was freaking out because he was so jealous. And now he's finally risen to a level where he has at least enough, enough pull to have a couple of guys working under him. And he's, he's loving it. So he's keeping them around to, to kind of make himself feel better and feel a little bit more powerful than he may actually be. So you mentioned, the, and the first topic I have is basically Wibistics, this, the, this <laughs> NASD Series 7 exam mm-hmm. that we start the show with. Um, the Asian stereotype prevails. If you're going to have a cheater, always have an Asian be your cheater. That, that right? always bugged me. Like, couldn't they just get somebody smart that might have looked like a Moltisanti? Perhaps yeah. a Persian Jew? Even, even that. <laughs> or a lady. Uh, I guess she wouldn't have a Christopher. No, yeah, no, Chris. Yeah. The theme for this Wibistics thing, first of all, it's a great name. It's just a fun name. Um, it's always with the revenue schemes. Every season, I feel like we're introduced to, like, Tony's got a new hustle. The family has a new project, and this is Christopher's baby. It's cool. This is the other thing that I always mention to you guys when we talk about the show is they give you an education on it. You're not going to be passing the Series 7 exam, but it opens you and introduces you to a world. And when I watched it, I was much younger for the first time, and I was like, whoa, this is like actually happens, and you take this exam. What does that mean? Mm. So that was a cool thing that takes place, and every season we get a little piece of that. We're introduced to two new characters, which we kind of mentioned already, Matt Bevilacqua and Sean, can you say his last name? Gismati? Gismati, Gis- yeah. Was it? No, it's, I think it's Gismati. Gis- 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 okay. That's, that's, that's what they say in the show. They... Trying to avoid that, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Lilo Broncado Jr. is the actor that plays Matt Bevilacqua. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like John has a lot of information on him, right? What can you tell me about uh, in 2008, Broncado was sentenced to uh, 10 years in prison for his involvement in attempted burglary that led to the shooting death of an off-duty NYPD officer. Uh, he was released on parole in 2013 after serving eight years. Uh, his co-defendant, who fired the fatal shot, was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Uh, he has since made the, a pretty good turnaround. He's sober, uh, very active in his own Instagram page. A shout out to him. It sounds like he's doing a lot better. What's his at? Do you know? I believe it's like at Lilo Broncano. Yeah. Um, a reference. You guys must have picked up on this. Adriana. She's got the cultural references like crazy. Last season, she was Tennessee Multisanti. This episode, she refers to Christopher as EF. So, EF. I'm listening. It's fucking tedious, this shit. Well, you are the boss. A.K.A. E.F. Hutton, the mm. famous stock brokerage. I thought that was good. She also looked amazing, by the way. Another observation, I wanted to shout out Gateway Computers. Growing up, <laughs> I had a gateway. I don't know if you guys did. In Christopher's office on yeah, the background? Yeah, there's a poster in the background. And I, it was such a relic of the past. Gateway Computers feature Intel Pentium processors. Call us at 1-800-GATEWAY and we'll build one for you. What kind of stock brokerage has high school trophies as desk decorations. Did you guys notice that? The one with Matthew Bevelock and Sean <laughs> Gismati working there. And I also noticed behind Tony when he's talking to his lawyer, I'm mixing, I'm blurring the two episodes again now, but behind Tony at the Bing, there's a bunch of trophies. 
Is that this whole like high school thing where does he have an Al Bundy complex basically? I don't think he does. I do think that that's a theme throughout the show is reminiscing and and we know Tony's feelings on uh, lowest form of communication. Remember when is the lowest form of communication? Wasn't that a kind of sign of the times when participation awards were just rampant and I just remember growing up around that time period, everyone was getting a trophy Everybody for something. Everybody had trophies? I don't and know, I just, you know what? They they attribute that to so many of the problems with quote-unquote millennials, but but it wasn't millennials that were asking for these trophies. It was their parents, their the parents, baby boomers, yeah. that were forcing these participation trophies. I don't think one kid ever felt that coming in 10th place in their, their youth basketball league ever made them feel like they were winners or they earned a trophy. I, I think it was pretty irrelevant. Yeah. Sorry, that's my little No, I just noticed moment. it more than normal today, and I was yeah. just wondering if you guys had any, like, what, what, what is with the trophies? Even at a stock brokerage. Maybe well, a nod they, to all the Emmys and Golden Globes they got? Well, they probably want to pretend they're a good place, so they're going to put whatever they can up to be like, look, we have, we have esteemed trophies. Yeah. We're, we're they also had Basset Hound calendars yeah, random, on the wall, too. Random shit. It's very random. Um, topic two, Melfi. Melfi is conducting her practice from a motel room, which we mentioned. Some symbolism here. We mentioned back in season one how the scenery changes behind Tony and Christopher in that regularness of life scene. Remember when they're in the car? Here, too, in this episode, and Soprano's Autopsy mentions this point uh, and connects it to there's a director whose work I'm not familiar with, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni. Do you know anything about him, Naya? Have you heard of him? No. He's a director who basically uses the backgrounds to convey the emotions of the subject. And so it has been addressed on record by Soprano's Autopsy. So like other people are noticing it. We noticed it last season. And here, uh, when Tony's driving in his car before he has the nervous breakdown, I'm mentioning this now because it's, this is the Melfi topic, Tony's panic attack. When he's driving in the car and he's listening to, I believe, I found uh, what it is. Smoke too. on the Water mm-hmm. is the song. Mm-hmm. I forget who it's by. I think it's by... Uh, purple. Deep Purple. Deep Purple. Okay. Um, he, you see the scenery go from decent, so like beautiful New Jersey, which is not that beautiful, but then to like a <laughs> decrepit, torn, almost demolished building. There's like a sea change and then it coincides with him crashing into the to to his uh, panic attack i just wanted to mention that because it was a great sort of regularness of life moment coupled with the stuff that we've been talking about in the past coming back again this whole idea of like the scenery changing and i think you pointed it out naya with christopher the color the shade behind his head versus the shade behind tony's Mm -hmm. head when they were going back and forth totally um we're introduced to a new character the new therapist with the bolo tie and cowboy boots, Mr. Spears, he has a great line where he says, Mr. Spears, I watch the news like everyone else. I know who you are. And I saw analyze this. I don't need the ramifications that could arise from treating someone like yourself. Analyze this? Yeah. Come on, it's a fucking comedy. I'm not taking new patients right now. What do you guys make of his outfit? And what do you think they were trying to convey to viewers portraying him in this way? It wasn't deliberate, but what is your reaction to the guy? I thought he was hacky. That's, that's really how I look like. He wasn't really paying attention to, to Tony. He was just waiting for his opportunity to say, all right, see, analyze this. I can't take you on as a 
as a patient. I think that that was his end game there. And he wanted to sit down with a mafioso because that's like a sexy thing to do. I th- well, that's yeah, a good story. To have. Yeah, I, I don't know if he necessarily wanted to sit down with him in the first place. He probably did some sort of a phone call, like appointment set. And then once he saw who he was, like, oh, you're not Mr. Spears, you're Tony Soprano. I watched the news. Interestingly enough, the guy was in The Godfather 3. Really? Mm-hmm. As what? Lou Panino. Hmm. I also thought this is very like symbolic. Their chairs weren't facing each other. They were like uh, turned outwards. Mm. So they weren't actually talking directly at each other. And with Melfi and Tony, they look right at each other. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Just like this. You I love a bolo, so right I'm biased. I like a bolo. I wear you a bolo. Like the bolo. I wear them sometimes. Um, it's different for you, though. It's okay. Uh, yeah, it's you ironic can, can, and weird for you me. Can, you not, can make it work. Yeah. He did a, not so much. I have a third grade graduation photo where my mom made me wear a bolo tie, kind of look like Elvis. <laughs> something <laughs> I noticed that, yeah. I mean, I think we should all rock bolos personally. They're cool. But something I noticed in the scene you mentioned with Dr. Melfi in the hotel room when she got a call from Tony, there were pills next to the phone. Did any of you guys see that? No. Mm. Yeah, there were like it was a bottle of pills, and I they weren't in. It wasn't in focus, but I was confused because I felt like that introduced like she's she starts to develop some issues of her own, and she sees a psychiatrist as we find out and stuff. Right. But yeah. I thought she's, it was interesting to see that maybe this experience she's taking something. You think she's, she's taking anti-anxiety pills? Maybe. I don't know. I just thought it was weird. When 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 she, Why would she the have phone, them there when she, she was, was she was a mess. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about the song A Very Good Year. She probably wasn't having one. Yeah. She had to go out on the lamb. Great juxtaposition. She was not having a good year. And she needed her pills in the same place that she's doing, seeing her patients. Like, she must really need it Why wasn't she seeing her patients in the house? She mentioned, like, it's not convenient for me, but, like, isn't it? Oh, maybe it's, I just answered my own question. Maybe it's because her house is, like, they know where she lives. Maybe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, some some, some boundaries. Yeah. Fun Uh, fact about the character that she sees at her hotel. Yeah. It's uh, the first of three series appearances by this minor character. But it's played by a show producer, writer, and one episode director, Terrence Winter, who was filling in for this when no other actor pleased director Wait, hold Alan on, that, Coulter. That's Terrence that Winter. Terrence, oh, that's Terrence, the, that's he's the writer for like. Boardwalk Empire. That yeah. man? Okay. The creator. Oh, the man? The man, that. the patient. And he that. filled in whenever uh, Alan Coulter didn't like the extras. Tony, Tony always sitting for a role. makes references throughout the entire series of like the Joe Jerkoffs that come yeah. walking into Melfi's office. Yeah. That like, he refers to them as like, you know, the epitome of like the sad sack that yeah. he doesn't want to be, um, but he oftentimes is. He is the poster boy for that, I think. Every time you see him, he's like really sad and melancholy and he just fits that like persona so well. Do you notice Melfi's kind of interaction with him versus with Tony? She's very into Tony, but with these other ones, she's bored out of her mind we see this more than once like it's she's like tony's like it's like an entertain it's like it's not work tony is like it's like going to a laker game you know (laughs) like you never know what the outcome is going to be it's entertaining well with the guy yeah with a guy like that it's like okay the same old story right you know sad about his life blah 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 with tony it's a whole new experience and it's a whole new frontier for her to explore yeah the camera pans to the left when she's talking to Terrence Winter. I don't know what the name of the patient is, so we'll just call him Terrence Winter. The name of the patient is 
Tom Amberson. Tom Amberson. Sounds like a Tom Amberson. So we can um, just call him Joe Jerkoff. Yeah. Joe, Joe Jerkoff. Jerkoff. Yeah. The camera pans, and it's an awkward angle. It's not like a beautiful frame, but in the off corner on the left, you see a Claude Monet print, okay? The art world is coming back into the Sopranos world again. It's super intentional. Even the curtains in her cheap motel look French impressionistic. And she's just, wearing pearls too. She's wearing pearls. Yeah. And impressionism is all about ordinary objects and movement. And it's just, it, it's a, it's a throwaway scene, but it becomes so like jump out of the box to me when I put all of these things together. Finally, I just want to say that I love diner scenes and this diner scene at the end with Melfi and Tony, um, any diner scene in any movie in any TV show it's always substantive. I think of Pulp Fiction. You think of all the stuff that we've watched. I, I don't think you can ever botch a diner scene. One thing I noticed, uh, well, two things I noticed. Melfi basically tells him to get lost. He takes it pretty well. Any thoughts on that? Like, he was not reactionary. He mentioned impulse control to Christopher earlier in the episode. Is there more to it than that? Any thoughts? He really needs her help, and I think he's afraid to scare her anymore. I mean, he's calling her at the motel. He's, you know, showing up in random places and then grabbing knives and grabbing her. It's, it's he scary. moves the knife away from her. Did you guys catch that? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't catch it. He mentions uh, removing the cutlery or something. Yeah, or yeah. The cutlery, the cutlery stays where, where it, it is. is. Yeah. yeah. Is she gonna do something to him in public with a knife? Like that's the thing. Like it's or that is that his built-in paranoia of always thinking that she, something's gonna go down against him. You know. I feel like. She, she kind of goes for it to Does protect she? herself, yeah. and he's, he stops her. Okay, I think it's more reactionary. Last season, we see her like put one in her sleeve, yeah. mm -hmm. and he no oh he notices it. Does he? he? There's a moment where they where he he realizes what's happened. Maybe that's his response to it when they meet again. I think he just didn't think she was going to say no. I think that's why he had nothing to say. I yeah. think she he really thought she was going to take him back because she's safe now. It's all good. No one got hurt. Let me come back. And she but he usually doesn't no. respond well to rejection. So I was kind of proud of him. He, he stood out there and looked in, into the... Well, he doesn't know, know what he's going to do now. He's, yeah. just, he's lost. Yeah. He's lost without her. Janice. My favorite. Fucking Janice. Naya, is, is Janice Livia 2.0? Break down Janice. Go. I think Janice is not Olivia, Livia 2.0 because she's more aware in a way. And she's, I don't know, she's such a hypocrite. Like, she's wearing a crystal necklace, like, just visually, and she's wearing cross earrings. So she doesn't, she's an atheist, I think, or she believes in Buddhism, I forget. But she's so hippie, but she still has these weird, contradicting things. I don't know, I love her. She's my Fantastic everything. actress, fantastic character, but despicable yeah. character. I guess she is a lot like her mother, in some ways. But she's the new generation of it, so she's even more batshit crazy. What about you guys? Before we... <laughs> analyze it what are, what are your what are your initial thoughts initial comments on janice and you guys are experts now because you just did her startup, she, startup i think she's act. a product of livia and it's interesting to see in the first season we get to see what tony has become by the influence of his mother and in this episode in particular we get to not only meet janice but barbara mm -hmm. and out of the three siblings you see three very different outcomes um totally just totally. Janice. Janice is the youngest, right? Janice, Janice is, is the, the oldest. oldest. The oldest. Yeah. Yeah. She's the little brother to Tony. Yeah, Tony's the middle. Barbara's the youngest. And Barbara's the baby in the that back in the sense. flashback. She, yeah. Was yeah. In, she was in the she's a, high chair. a pretty hated character among the fandom 
but I She's like you, I, I gravitate towards these Cold the Ralph Cifaretto's, the Richie Aprils. Yeah. The She's Janice a feminist Dillich. for sure. It makes so much fun out of the yeah. show. Well, look, strategically and tactically, it's so smart for David Chase because Junior's in the can and Livia's, she's in, in hospice or whatever. Not hospice, but she's, she's in the hospital. So you need these two people to get under Tony's skin. And who better than Janice and... I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the other foil... That's a counterpart to Janice in, in a completely different way is, is Big Pussy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's who I was thinking. Yeah, we're, and we're going to talk about him next. You need Big Pussy to take away from what's going on with Junior, and then Janice acts as a surrogate, but she's her own wild beast. I want to shout out Soprano's Autopsy again for addressing the pool cleaner. That was my... What, what is that? Okay. Why so, we see that? So G, they're talking outside, mm-hmm. right? And she's kind of like... She's a snake. Uh. And the pool cleaner is signifying or symbolic, this is Soprano's autopsy's take, that she's like a reptilian in nature. And it's because she's moving in on that house. We know yeah. what's going on. And Tony's, Tony's kind of wants to give her the benefit of the doubt. He says he's going to be 5G's lighter. Yeah, I wonder what the scam is this time. Whatever it is, I'm going to be five grand lighter before she rain dances back to the commune. Maybe she's coming for money, but he doesn't know that she basically wants to come in and like run North Jersey <laughs> alongside him. So the, the pool cleaner, I didn't, when I watched it, I didn't know, but then I read Soprano's Autopsy and I was like, motherfucker. I thought maybe like, because she's going to try to clean up or help, but that makes way That's more sense. Point. That's a good point. Do, do you guys buy the reptilian thing? You know, I wanted so badly to call this a, a Vic Reach or just a Reach in general, but I, I think it's pretty on point. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a pretty good visual metaphor for who she is, especially it, it comes immediately yeah. after Tony says... I don't want you to ever speak of our mother in this house again. And then a couple seconds later, it pans to that. You know that she's not going to keep that promise. Right. She's Through her uh, backstory, you can tell maybe at a younger age, she tried to get away from this life and get as far away from her family in North New Jersey as possible. And now she's back and the apple doesn't far fall from the tree here. And she's this originally is just from, the beginning. Yeah, she's originally from Brooklyn. Ada, mm-hmm. you mentioned Barbara. One of you mentioned Barbara, played by Nicole Burdett. She now in real life teaches at prestigious universities around New York. Barbara, Janice, and Tony are together. They hug, they embrace. There's a moment. They have a barbecue. They have a family gathering. This is a rare sight, you guys. We only see Barbara four times in the entire show out of 86 episodes. And it's a different, they, they hire yeah. a different actress later right. on, too. She's that boring. No. Yeah, they do. No. Well, this actress was in Goodfellas. Carboni's girlfriend? Carbone's girlfriend. Frank Sivero's, the actor's girlfriend. Hmm. Interesting. Um, when we see them embrace, the camera cuts to Carmela looking from a distance. She actually has genuine happiness in her face for the first time in... 14 episodes, right? There was like a moment it's of my like, favorite yeah, moment. yeah, yeah. Really well, that's, I think that's her seeing the best of Tony. What is she, like, th- what is she thinking? Like, d- per, I mean, to me, it's a testament to how much family means to Carmela. That's why she stays in the situation she's in for so long and puts up with everything. So when she sees Tony with his family, she has a moment of just happiness because like family is so important to her. Yeah. And that's Tony at his best, bringing, yeah. bringing the family together. I also loved AJ's reaction to how loud they are because I can relate to that. It, 
my relatives are so fucking loud. My aunts and my mother together. <laughs> oh, that was that was so good. I oh can my, relate to that it's so just much too. Like no one, the closer they get to each other, the louder they are. It's very weird. I wish the show had devoted <laughs> uh, a full episode or a longer time to develop this character, so we would have seen an outsider's perspective of the family. Barbara. Yeah. Yeah, I've it's one of the it's one of my if you count them on my finger, one of the things I wished. I got, you know, I got wished I got closure on the ending, and I wished that you got to look at the family from outside the family, like a Barbara, like a Barbara backstory episode, which we, Mad Men would have done. But we know everything about Barbara. You know, I think that uh, what do we know about? What do we know about her? She's there to provide. I think she's there to provide context for the other characters that that they're choosing to live this sort of life. They weren't forced to become people that you know, kept the tradition of the family business going. They could have had an out. She did. So there wasn't a a definitive fate for these characters. They could have led normal, regular lives. Tony could have sold patio furniture in San Diego he if he wanted to. He didn't have to become to. his dad. He didn't have to become his dad. He chose to do that. That's good um, point. Janice went away and chose to come back because this is the life that she wanted. She got away. She could have stayed away if she wanted to. Maybe she had financial issues, but she could have I think a lot away. of it is tied to the finance. She just wants yeah, to... Yeah, like, she's she just got an agenda. To, she, she wants to just live off of Tony, basically. Yeah. Um, especially I mean, when she finds out... The, the timing of her arrival, right, is now her brother is the de facto boss. She didn't come last season. Yeah. We hear about her last season, but now that he's the kingpin, she wants a piece. And Barbara action. even says, I only called you because I thought you'd want to know your mom is sick. And she said, don't rock the boat. And like to me, that's why I don't, I would never want to watch anything more of Barbara. She's just trying to play it by the rules, get by. She has a normal husband, like doesn't, it's a good point. doesn't like want to upset Tony, let him deal with it. I only called you because it's your mother too. She had a powerful line there yeah. where she basically tells Janice to like, like don't, don't do what you're doing. Yeah. Stop and it. That's all you need to know about and Janice. She was wearing right like a, like a beige, boring pantsuit, Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. And Janice was in her like hippie they yoga live in look. Upstate New York in a small little hamlet. So I like the notion that Barbara exists in the world in this universe, right? That conversation led to a great intro to uh, Polly showing up to the party too. Oh, that's right. That line was great. Yeah. Jesus Christ, fucking Polly Gautieri. Isn't he dead yet? Carmela's parents, we mentioned earlier, love them. Hugo DeAngelis and um, what's the mom's name? Oh. I don't know. Her Let's name. find out. Um, she was in Goodfellas too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hugo DeAngelis was played by an actor, Tom Aldridge. He passed away in 2011. Um, rest in peace. I definitely anticipate seeing the younger versions of Carmelo's parents in the Many Saints of Newark because there's a lot of history there. We learn about their feelings about Livia. We learn about what Livia said to Carmela on the day of their wedding. Remember what she said to you at your wedding? She said it was a mistake. Tony would get bored with you. I, I don't know. It's just fascinating to like be able to see these guys in their, yeah. in their earlier. It's, it's Mary DeAngelis. Mary, Mary DeAngelis. Mary. Thank you. Memorable line, speaking of Mary DeAngelis, when she hears Janice's name, she goes by Janice. You can call her by Janice, but she goes by Parvati. She goes, what, she's a cheese now? Parvati. Parvati. Is that a cheese? Havarti. Havarti oh, is the cheese. That was the, right. that was the pun. Oh, she's funny. Um, the notable music moment, you guys probably all noticed this, the same opera, I think it's Andrea Bocelli, mm -hmm. is playing from the season one pilot, the pilot barbecue. So it's the same music. And we hear well, that again yeah. later too. There's a so big little, song. A little bit of symmetry. Do you think Livia 
Uh, do you think Janice trashed Livia's place so Tony wouldn't be able to sell it? That it wasn't teenage kids? I wouldn't put it past her. Is that viable now? I, I, it's I don't possible. think it's a reach at all. Like after yeah. you after put you, that in yeah, motion, I, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, why? That's definitely. Totally. And we never get closure with it. We know, obviously, that's not going to become a thing. It's going to die on a vine right here. But I just wanted to like toss that out at you guys. Yeah, what do you think they did in that room? I don't know. I well, don't want to know. I mean, she, does some, I mean, she does some crazy things in that house, yeah. as we'll come yeah. to know, with Mr. Richie Aprile. We know that she went to the house. Ex- I was just going to say that. We know that she, she went took to the, the house sign. to take the sign. So why wouldn't she take it a step further and do some damage to get her own way? I'm really surprised that Tony didn't think that she was a part of that, too. Well, he later finds the for sale sign in the back of her car, Olivia's car, which, by the way, do anybody know the year, make, and model of that car? It's a beautiful car. I do. It's a 1963 Oldsmobile Dynamic 88. And through a deeper dive, the car is seen parked outside the Sopranos' home in Season 5, Episode 4. And they're possibly intended to be the car that uh, Tony Blundetto is driving Mm. after his release from prison, that he inherits this car. And this is before inheriting Feech's Cadillac after he goes back in. But... The car is seen later on. What color is that car? It's like a green sky blue, like a like a aqua blue. I don't know. It's like oh, a no, weird. It was a green. Oh, you're, the, right, you're right. You're but right. But it was like a, not a lime lime. It was. I'm thinking. A, I'm thinking a Johnny Boy's car. Yeah, the, I, I just like there's something attractive. Like it was very, it was very not Livia. Does that make sense? Uh, there was stuff I read. People attributed it to when you're older, uh, like your grandma doesn't drive that often so to the store and back so you tend to keep an older car longer or that it may have been johnny boy's old car and she kept it for sentimental reasons like the internet is this wonderful place where people start with the conjecture of the car could have been here and there ends up becoming its own character i'm gonna jump to pussy do you guys have any final thoughts on janice i just like the fight between tony and carmella about Janice with the sign. Yeah, go have some pleasure with your friends. Yeah. That was a very powerful Carmela moment. I feel like I'm doing a disservice by not talking about those little moments where like, there's not a lot of Carmela speak on the podcast. And she she was powerful where she was basically steering him. She was melfying him to go out and he was self-medicating and he had no therapist and she's... She she kind of owned the situation. Yeah. It's, a little, um, it's a little tough to comment on Carmela too much right now because most of... Her attitude towards Tony is passive aggressive. Yeah. So it's not there's not a lot being put out from her to kind of go go off. It, it's really a lot of it's kind of behind the scenes that I think she gets That's a little bit why more. She doesn't imp- get a lot of airtime. Yeah, and she gets a little bit more empowered throughout the series, and then then there's a little bit more meat to discuss. Very true. And she has that outburst at that party. I think she cares about Tony, but also there's guests at her house. Her parents. So she's like, please yeah. don't make a fucking scene make in front scene. of me. Go yeah. outside, have yeah. a beer. That's yeah, true. with her parents being there for the first time yeah. in what seems like years. Ages. Yeah. Great point. Pussy. Tony's still suspicious. This whole thing with Tony and Pussy is just basically like drinking lukewarm lemonade, basically. Like, it's just not, it's not working for me. He's still suspicious and never quite feels right. He has Polly check out the Puerto Rico story. Um, just general reactions to like why he's still not convinced. What's like what's going on? Jimmy's dead. So why isn't it why isn't it dead? Why isn't it over? Go back to to last season, one of the last episodes. The title: Nobody knows anything. I think Tony still th- thinks that way, and you can't can't really put that 
on Jimmy when when Vic McKazian said it was Vin it, or Vin Freudian slip. Vin. He he specifically said it was Sal Bomancero, big pussy, your friend. Yeah, great point. So, so like, why why would he go and assume that Jimmy would would take that spot when he was specifically identified? Also, I thought it was funny when they all get back and Silvio says, I miss you, like, do it for me. And he does the Godfather stuff. And he says, our true enemy has yet to reveal himself. And then it cuts to yeah. pussy. Yeah, that's a dead, that's yeah. a dead giveaway right you know? there. Um, great line, too, is uh, when Tony and, uh, and Puss are in the basement and he's, like, chasing him around saying, You know what? Fuck you. I don't want to hear about your fucking back anymore. Who's your fucking boss, huh? Who's your fucking boss? Who gets the explanation? What am I supposed to trust you, you fucking off the reservation, cocksucker? There's a lot of comedy in that. Yeah. Like, like Tony was like a little kid chasing his like old, like friend in the schoolyard. I th I think Tony really wants to believe him, but there's one thing that that Pussy says that Tony gets taken aback with, and he has this seed of doubt that grows. And it's when Big Pussy's talking about the 26-year-old acupuncturist that he was having an affair with. And Tony makes this face like he just, I don't believe that. Yeah. And, and later on in, in, uh, in, in the series, we, we see a mention of that again. And, and that's where Tony kind of draws the line and says, okay, you're full of shit. And I think that's really where the gap in trust kind of lies is like this one small part of his lie that's where, if you look closely at Tony's reaction, he kind of makes makes the biggest think about. I'll go back and check that. Yeah. yeah, I was also thinking in my mind, like, no disrespect to Puss, but like, what twenty six year old is going to like be be like exactly voluntary voluntarily into that? Exactly. You know, she probably got a lot of a lot of options. That's the point. I yeah. think that's the point. Yeah. Um, I had an issue with uh, Polly doing some investigation to clear up the story. And we got no clarity on that. It was just, well, because Polly said everything checks out, it checks out. Well, but Tony trusts him. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I, I'm with you, but, like, that's... When you delegate, you delegate, you know? You got to... That led me to remember uh, some info I found about uh, Tony Sirico. I uh, had agreed to sign on to the show on the condition that his character was not a rat. I thought that was... Spoiler alert. Does he have any history... With the like organized crime, oh, yeah, in real life? yeah, he a lot of was a mobster apparently and has been arrested 28 times. So he's yeah. OC, yeah, yeah, okay. So that's good for him then. He, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be affiliated with being a rat. That's, yeah, wow, that's crazy. What a great actor if he's like a re, if he was the real deal too. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is a really interesting documentary. I think it's called Gangster, I, I could be wrong, but it's just a series of interviews and they interview him for like 40 some minutes and and he just talks about his tells him a couple of tree things a couple of tree things nothing to implicate him i guess the statute of limitations was gone but he does go into a wow. few of his crimes fascinating i don't know whether it's like scripted and he's a character or if he's really talking about his, his past experiences but i think it comes off as as real that's, I didn't know that. Autobiographical. That's, I know there's something later in the series that his character does that he had a really hard time having to do. Ah, oh, interesting. Do you guys think that in front of the fire, like the barbecue, that scene, when Tony, it seemed like he was having a panic attack or about to, because we yeah. know we've ha he's had one in the exact place before, but he's looking at Pussy, and when I watched it a million times, a part of me felt like in that moment, maybe he was just having a panic attack, but I thought I 
felt he knew he, he was a rat then. I think he now believes, for some reason, something triggered, for me at least, as wa- while I was watching, that he knows it's pussy. Yeah, no, I've, I felt like he's known since season one, and it's just every time he looks at him, it's like you keep looking at the person that you know you're eventually, like it, it, there's this air of inevitability. Well, he's um, been, uh, I mean, betrayed by his own mother, and it took him a really long time to come point. with grips to that. Great point. And Who here can he you is, trust if you can't trust your own mother? Or his best friend now, so he's doing everything he can to believe that this isn't true. Um, that scene with the four guys around the Shelly barbecue Heck. singing Hesh, I, 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 can't, I just wrote down a note on my, when I was watching it, Hesh and the Andouilles, that's the band name, the, <laughs> get the sausage, Andouille sausage. Hesh that's and funny. <laughs> no, it didn't work, didn't work. No, no, no rim shot. I got it. I um, that. okay. Uh, the 12, so, uh, Puss mentions 12 Rico predicates. Is this why Junior's in jail? I just wanted to say that that's actually a lot of Rico predicates. There's not that many more than 12 Rico predicates. So they got Junior good. What I will say, we'll get into it next episode, but what I will say is, is like the fact that he gets out of jail, uh, you know, to be on house arrest or whatever is quite impressive with that much of a rap sheet. That's a big rap sheet. How many, uh, I think there's like 19 or 20 predicates. How many do you need? Before it's like, considered a... Uh, for them to, for the feds to like want to invest the resources to come after you, I think no less than three. Um, but like the more you get, obviously, like you have that, you know, there'll be more incentive and people will put more resources into shutting it down. But if you go on Wikipedia and you look at the big RICO cases, they're all monster cases. Like there's the Major League Baseball, there's the NFL, um, there is one organized crime one. I think it's the Lucchese family. Mm, um, that's, that's the, that's, that's the big one. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so, 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 but there, most of them are, there's a lot of white collar, uh, Rico predicate stuff. Um, and, uh, so I was just kind of like amazed. Like, I feel like Junior was very, he hadn't had an arrest since 1968. How the fuck do they have him on 12 Rico predicates that, I don't know if that was a production error or something, but I just wanted to say that that's a lot. Well, he was the lightning rod. There you go. And he got got it all. He got struck by lightning 12 times. A technical observation, the pussy and Tony uh, Tony walking down the driveway, which we see often. I love it. It's one of the the things that makes me feel like I'm at home in the world when I see Tony walking down his driveway. Um, The theory that we perceive much of the show through Tony's eyes comes again when Tony's in the driveway and the camera sort of orbits his head. This has happened multiple times in the show already, but I want to say one thing. It doesn't happen when I, we want it to happen the most, which is at the very end. Mm-hmm. And now that we're wa- I'm watching the show so carefully, every time something dramatic is going to happen to Tony, this orbit movement or this sort of like pan movement happens. And I think obviously it was a deliberate choice to not have it happen when we want it to happen the most. I can think of three more instances where it happens in future episodes. I won't go there yet. But I just wanted to say that. That was just an observation that I had. So questions. Why was Puss parked like he was ready to peel out and take off? The angle was curious to me. Did you guys notice that? It was like almost like he was like ready to like... If, yeah, if you look closely, it looks like from the way he's parked that he had to be backed into that position. Yes. So it was like a methodical spot to be in. And obviously, I think it's pretty intuitive why he would want to be ready to go if Tony had an adverse reaction or 
or saw saw his car from up on his hill and came down with some sort of a weapon, he, he needs to be ready to go. But the beached whale he got out of the car. <laughs> He's not going to be able to get back. Well, I think go. once he saw that Tony was ju well, just coming in down robe. in his robe, just coming down for the newspaper and, and wasn't wise to the situation, that's when he felt comfortable enough to, to walk out with his hands up. I think he was forced by the feds to do that. I don't think he wanted to be anywhere near his house. I think it was a very reluctant move on his part. And some of the episode two will drive that home a little bit, but he was not comfortable. St anyway. Strategically, it's a safe place, I think, for him to meet Tony, thinking that if he is going to do something, he wouldn't do it on his own yeah. home turf. Do you guys think Puss really went to Puerto Rico? Was it all bullshit? Well, if Polly cleared it up, then it happened, right? How... First but of all, he, they could have just said how's that. How's Polly going to clear that? He did that look tan. They yeah. no, say he no looked Google. tan. They said he was <laughs> tan. FBI. He'd have to do like the serial cell tower FBI investigation. He'd have to have some like corroboration from law enforcement. I don't think he was. I think it was all, you know, it's all part of the thing. But I think, John, you hit the point home. Like the story, or, or Justin, the story with the, about the girl in Puerto Rico made Tony cringe. That's all you yeah. need to know. Yeah. Um, junior. The guy momentarily running things for Junior while he's in the can, emphasis on the word momentarily, Philly Parisi, played by the actor Dan Grimaldi. A.K.A. Spoons. A.K.A. Spoons. How does he get that nickname? Anybody I, know? That was bothering me. I was no, waiting for knows. Mm. Um, Why is he so mad about having to pick up pastries for his wife? A. And B, is that a Godfather reference? The cannolis? It's a reverse leave the cannolis. Maybe, Take yeah. the Get the pastries. This is uh, Clemenza's wife? Yeah. In yeah. Don't forget the cannolis. It's similar. It is similar, right? I feel like we've seen a lot of men leaving while some woman is yelling from yelling. the house. Most recently... Uh, Fuckface-itis. Fuckface-itis. <laughs> Thank you. Love to talk to that guy. I loved your question about the suitcase. I thought that was funny. Why didn't he ask about... Or to keep it clean versus... When he throws it over the Oh, cup. yeah, yeah. He's like, it's my favorite suitcase. It doesn't Polly know what's going to happen? I think Polly just cares more about his thing. Like, I don't know. I don't think he even got that far. He just... The yeah. fact that they even used the prop was adorable to me. Yeah, no, I love Maybe it. it's just that's not the line that he wants to be using at the airport. Like, hey, don't get any blood on this. <laughs> there you go. I, that's a great point. But but it's fucking he's, Polly. He's not he, going to talk yeah. about that. He just, don't, don't lose my favorite little suitcase. So petty. But we know he's like a germaphobe, and he's like yeah. a super neat freak in his house. So, and he puts plastic on his furniture, if I recall correctly. So um, let's, go, go, let's go to that airport scene for a second. Um, am I the only one? I love airports. I could, like, <laughs> I could, like, hang, I could hang out at airports. It's like a weird thing I have. But they made it look so cinematic. Again, another throwaway scene, but the angles, the lights, the colors, and that guy, Gigi. Oh, let me ask, you, ask a question about Gigi. He is a member of Junior Soprano's crew. Why did Tony task him with killing Junior's underboss? Because that was the person that he'd feel comfortable with. I think that's... But that's, why did Tony trust him? I, why did Tony just wax him? Why is Gigi alive? I, I, I don't know. I'm sure behind the scenes in that very, during that very good year, there was a lot of discussions that we, he had with the surviving members of that, of that crew and found out the loyalties. It, exactly. And we'll, meet, them out. we'll meet Bobby Bocciolieri. And I'm saying Bocciolieri because that's how Tony says it. Yeah. <clears throat> that's how Tony says it when we're first introduced to him. Yeah, you're right. So maybe in the time that we didn't watch, Tony has found some of the good apples yeah, in that bad patch. He vetted Gigi. Well, and if you're Gigi, 
you got to figure out what team you're going to play for. And he yeah. may have even he preemptively gone to Tony or someone close to Tony and said, hey, what can I do? Yeah. Well, Bobby Bacilieri says, hey, I inherited Junior. Junior yeah. yeah. Right? Well, I guess when you're coming up in the ranks, you work for who you work for, right? You don't pick your yeah. boss. You don't pick your... Your, your one, GM. One thing during that Philly Parisi and Gigi scene when they're in the car, he's asking him about uh, Boston. He's saying, that place is Scranton with clams. And, uh, was, was Scranton like a well-known place before the, the office? Before Joe Biden? Pennsylvania? Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. He was in Boston, Oh, it, though, it was? Scranton. It was Scranton, Pennsylvania. No, but, but was that... I, I only know that town from the office, and I thought it was chosen to be the... You know, Interesting. the location of the office because it's like any town USA, something that's just not a very well known place. Is that like on the East Coast? Do people know of Scranton as a you know city? Scranton if you like live in the region? But I only know Scranton because Joe Biden. He's still that scrappy kid from Scranton who beat the odds. Oh really? I only yeah. know it because of the office. The office. That's so like, it. yeah, it's and it's nowhere that you would put on your list of destinations. <laughs> yeah, one yeah. through fifty. Yeah. But I guess the clams are probably good. Philly says, so when Philly's driving before he gets blasted, which also was another Godfather reference, getting shot in the car, the driver getting shot. I don't remember which driver, driver, but the the blood pattern. Philly says, Coming off the lamb, every nickel counts. (laughs) Fucking cabs. Who's on the lamb? Is it him or is it Gigi? And why was he on the lamb? Do we know? Well, that's that's the point. So Gigi was on the lamb. Tony obviously had some back channels to him, and okay, all right. That's how the hit was. So he was set referring up. to Gigi being on the lamb yeah. in Boston. But the, the every penny counts part that that's that because he didn't want to pay too. for a cab. That's why he like the favor oh, to pick him up. I thought Philly was getting paid to pick him up. That makes more sense because like that every nickel counts sense. right now. You know, I'm doing you a favor. Yeah, I'll You've pick you. I'll lamb. pick you up. Sure. Gotcha. Well, the, the timing on that too. I mean, Pauly drove away just in time yeah. before he pulls I love up. That scene. Yeah, that was it's a brilliant a scene. Too close, a little too close yeah. for comfort. But it's it was like perfectly executed, like little gamesmanship in an era when there were no text messaging and no cell phones. They just timed that shit fucking perfectly. Um, hold on, my wife keeps texting me. This is like getting crazy. Some Italian for the show. Tony calls Livia a streg, which is strega is a witch. Yeah, really. And then calls Livia. Yeah, a to Janice a streg, and then he also the calls Janice to Carmela Bucchiac, which yeah. I'm pretty sure is a really. Bad word. Yeah, I've seen it. We in learned. The, we learned know, in, in D Girl. Graham. In, no, he's in we, D Girl. Yeah, in D Girl. Chris is telling Janine Garofalo. Yeah, to, well, if one, she's of from ca- Jersey. one of your captions is that. That was a few times. a few times. One of the times was when uh, Kendrick Lamar's album "Damn" came out. Yeah. So instead of that, we put Janine Garofalo there, and we titled it Bukiak. <laughs> it's a slang word. Yeah, it's yeah. a good. It's a good catch. Some Italian for you. Yeah. A stylistic and technical observation of the junior when Tony basically learns that his all of his enemies have been stymied, his de-risked the situation, the bridge in the background, the payphone in the foreground, then he gets the phone call and Silvio tells him it's done. Just a great static frame. And it goes to that whole notion of the background communicates the 
subject's emotions. And it was a calm, cool, crisp night in New Jersey. And Tony got some calm, cool, crisp like notification mm. that it, things are safe again. Do you think that's strange for younger kids now that may be watching this show? What is that? A phone outside? A pay phone? Like, yeah, man, you're the ones around LA that are like poor things. People like vandalize them. It kind of is like modems. Do you guys? Did you guys even have modems growing up? I had a modem. You never I did. Yeah, a modem. Yeah. I had a modem that you plugged into a wall. The Bay's fourteen four. The America Online. That's that wasn't that long ago. If you think no, about it. No, not at all. It's crazy. And within this show itself, like we're gonna go. Tony's in the payphone era. Tony migrates into the cell phone era. You know, like this show will take in, us on that. In the show, they even reference all of those like America Online CDs that you used to get for like a free yeah. month. Let's move on to the final sequence. What amazed me about the sequence, you guys, basically was the confidence. It's extremely, con- it was like three and a half minutes of real time. Carmela microwaves the pasta in real time. It's like really microwaving. There's no lapse in time. Tony and Carmela are essentially dancing around each other for three minutes very little is said. Tony's doing his little chewing of his inner lip that he does whenever he wants to say something, but he doesn't say anything. And he wants to like make Carmela, he he wants to reassure her, but he can't. I think he knows that she doesn't really want to talk to him. Like he doesn't even throw her a compliment or anything. Well, he says sit down. Yeah. That to me was like him. No? I, uh, you got to think about the scene before he gets rejected by Melfi. Yeah. And he's coming home defeated. He has nowhere else to go. Great point. And now he's coming back to his wife. And she was really endearing. It was. He was a wounded puppy. Yeah. He came back from the kennel. I love that. That's great. I, I just think that when they sit down together and she's looking through the mail and he's eating his pasta in those three minutes of the season premiere of the show, which is called The Sopranos, which we've come to expect, we're watching three minutes of tape where things could have happened, should have happened, usually would happen in TV, but instead it was actually a very normal encounter between two, a married couple, in in Scranton, Pennsylvania, okay? And that's what I think is so powerful about the show and why I think I want to mention it to you guys and I'm talking spending 3 minutes talking about a 3 minute segment segment when nothing happens is because that's why we keep coming back to the show. It's because it's ordinary life. Like that's exactly that's exactly what happens every day. And that's what Pussy said to I mean at least that was what he said to Tony, "Well, why did you come back?" He's like what changed? He says, well, "That's a problem. Nothing changed." And then even Meadow to Olivia, she said, why can't this family just get along? Which I thought of that when I was watching that scene at the end, just like... Pivoting back to the final scene yes. with the song Time is on My Side. Yes. Mm. Do you think there was uh, a choice in having it by Irma Thomas, a female singer of that version? Or why that rendition of... There's got to be a reason. Everything. It's a Rolling Stone song originally, Correct. right? Janice has a Rolling Stones tattoo, so maybe yeah. that's... Do you know what album that's from? That... No, I um, should. I think it's an empowering moment. That scene is an empowering moment for Carmela. As weird as that may sound, I'm not trying to be like Me Too-y here, but she knows everything about Tony, and she let him know that she knows everything by not saying a damn thing, by heating him up some pasta, putting it in front of him, and reluctantly sitting down, going through the mail. And the song, to me, signifies this notion to Tony that time is on my side. He has time to make things right. The show's book ended with 
it was a very good year, to like in that single episode, he devolves, he has the panic attack, he drives through all those stages of decrepitude, and then when he's with, when he's at his kitchen table with his wife, wounded puppy that John just alluded to, the number one woman in his life that he wants to like take, nurture him, the most nurturing woman in his life, Dr. Melfi rejects him, he has, he has time on his side. That's the one takeaway. And I think that the, uh, the, the choice to not do the Rolling Stone version was actually a good choice. I think so, too. The cover was, it was well played, mm-hmm. as you would say, because they could have forked out the extra money. The other thing is probably a little bit of this. HBO was like, how much do the Rolling Stones want for the song? <laughs> They'd still probably get a royalty because it's their they do, song. Th- it's the publishing right, yeah. right? But the performance royalty is significantly smaller because yeah. it's, I don't even know who the singer is. It's Irma Thomas. Irma Thomas. Who right. actually is quite, she's a famous singer, but she's not Rolling Stones level. Last call? Yeah. Final uh, comments? You, you put a note in on uh, breaking down the stock hustle. Yeah. What they're doing with, yeah, yeah, with logistics. So it's something that over the past year I'd say I've become a little too familiar with uh, just because of learning more You're about... you trading, Justin? Well, no. Learning more about <laughs> cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and some of the other altcoins. So a, a, a big issue with these is that there's not that many people involved. So a securities fraud called a pump and dump scheme is something that takes place. And that's what they're doing with logistics. Basically, every person who calls into their quote-unquote Brokerage, brokerage firm or advisory firm, whatever they're trying to do over there, that calls in, every single person who's an advisor will just push one stock and it's Wobistics. So then what they'll do is Tony and all of his crew will, will buy in super cheap. I think they said they bought in at 60 cents and now it's at 80 cents. And once it gets to a certain price, everybody who's in the know in on the scheme will sell it right when it hits that certain trigger. And then that'll leave everybody else who's bought in, who was advised through that company, they'll be left holding the bag. But everybody else cashes out at the, at the peak of the price. Um, oh my God. One, one thing that I found really interesting was that even Tony's lawyer was in on it. And I wanted to ask you, how does that work? Um, with Obviously, he's participating in something illegal. So obviously, that's, that's a no-go. But how does it work with with being a criminal um, defense attorney, if your client is telling you that he's doing, let's just leave out the fact that he's breaking the law himself, the attorney. How does that work with, with a client saying, I committed this crime? Do you have to basically tell your lawyer that you're innocent? Do you have to display yourself in that same manner? Or is the attorney obligated once somebody admits to to committing a crime that they have to report it he's asking for a friend not yeah for a friend (laughs) you have a duty to withdraw if you knowingly if if you know that your client has broken the law but if your client walks in like if you walk in today and you hand me a bag with a million dollars in it and you say i need you to keep this for me safekeeping i that's completely fine i'm not like an accessory to the crime or you're not an accessory to the crime or like a, a co-conspirator because you're just you're 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 doing what your client asks you to do. But in the in this in the case of like stock tips, mm-hmm. it's a gray area because lawyers do profit from their clients all the time. A lot of lawyers get paid. And don't some lawyers 
defend guilty people still? Yeah, you even have if, a right. Yeah. You, have, you have an obligation to yeah. defend even yeah. if they're guilty. Even if they know that they're wrong. Yeah, you have an obligation. Well, that's my question is is if you know they're guilty. You have to still represent them. You unless still represent they said them? something in but court. But even if they admit it, you said they have a right to withdraw. But do the, if they don't exercise that right, they have a, du- a duty to the withdraw. A duty to withdraw gotcha. if there's knowingly ongoing perpetration of fraud. It's just it's just bad practice. It's like, you know, I can't, you have to withdraw from the representation. Do you have a duty to report? I don't know. I would err on the side of saying no. Yeah. I would err on the side of saying you have a duty to like zealously advocate for your client. This is language that has been used sure. for millions of years. And the best way to do that is to say, look, I want to give you the service that you deserve, but because of what you're doing, I'm unable to do that. What so, if they're not continuing to do whatever illegal activity it is. Let's say it was something done once. Let's say just to keep it plain and simple, murder. Let's say Tony Tony needed a lawyer and he said, okay, tell me what, ha- I'm, I'm accused of committing murder. Tony, tell me what happened. Does Tony then tell the truth? And if he does, then is... It's privileged communication. Yeah. But then it's, does the lawyer defend him as he's in, as if he was innocent? Yeah. If he knows the truth? No, you, because he would be perjuring himself. Gotcha. You can't perjure yourself gotcha. under oath and you can't knowingly say false things. That being said, that's why lots of lawyers say, don't tell me anymore. Gotcha. Don't tell me anymore. So that's, that's how it goes but down. That's Just exactly don't, what don't Junior's lawyer is doing yeah. is it's like you're on a need to know basis. And if I need to know something from you, I'll ask you. Gotcha. And then, and then there's parameters on what, how I want you to tell me. Sure. And I am not a criminal lawyer and I don't, I've never done any kind of work like this, but I would imagine that I would sit down with them across from the room and I would say, look, we're going to draw out what this basketball court looks like. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get my NBA reference in. We're going to draw out what the court looks like and you can't go out of bounds. If you go out of bounds, gotcha. you're going to turn over the ball. My Michael Jordan baseball sabbatical wasn't enough? No, that didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't do it. So um, that, that's funny because that brings me to another thing that I, that I always take from Breaking Bad. It's when Jesse um, Pinkman is telling Walter White that they need to find a lawyer and you know Saul Goodman is the guy to go, got to go to. You don't need a criminal lawyer. You need a criminal lawyer. Right. And that's, right. that's where I, I yeah. kind of put Tony's lawyer in now. Now that he's in on this lobbyistic scheme, this pump and dump scheme, and he's committing securities fraud with Tony to profit himself, he's not a criminal lawyer. He's a criminal lawyer. Right. No, absolutely true. Yeah. That's the one thing about him. He's made a conscientious choice to have only those kinds of clients. Yeah. And that's, so that's, that they, those people do exist in the world. Yeah. You know, the Ray Donovan's of the world exist. The Saul Goodman's of the world exist. And that's just, it's, it's just, but they're few and far between. I feel like, especially today. What else we got? In January of 2000, uh, the Coalition of Italian American Associations issued a joint statement condemning the show for perpetuating negative Italian American stereotypes. And I thought that really? was interesting because if we go back to season one, there's a full discussion about the perception of Italian American stereotypes. And wow. that actual coalition then made an issue after season one with the show. Yeah, we talked about that in in one of the first episodes. Yeah. Um, that they were trying to do a preemptive strike because they knew that that was going to happen. And then I guess that's when it happened. And this was on the heels of the airing of the second season, which was mid-January. January 2000. Yeah. Uh, Y2K, man. Yeah. Wow, right after Y2K. 
Gosh, that then, was such a long uh, time ago. Yeah. I read some stuff about uh, when Steven Van Zant had landed the role of Silvio, his character's suits were made from uh, the real-life underworld figure of John Gotti's tailor. So huh. John Gotti's tailor made Silvio's suits yeah. in the show. Why only Silvio? I don't know. The fuck? But you think those are the ones that fell off comedy trucks? I'm just excited for Janice. Her yeah, arc Janice, is fun. Janice is very much the show going on now. Um, and I'm very excited about Richie. Oh, boy. Who was originally supposed to be Tony Soprano. He read for Tony. Get out of here. And they really? said he's not likable enough to play oh, Tony Soprano, they which were is right. very true. It's a totally they different right. show. I feel like Father Intentola right now. It's a different movie. Yeah. It's yeah. a different movie. <laughs> yeah, he read for Tony. Polly read for Junior. And Polly could have been anybody. And Lorraine Polly Bracco, could have been Silvio. Lorraine read for Carmela, but she said she didn't want to play another mobster. Yeah, right. yeah. No, she wanted to do, and and so good on her yeah. for getting that, yeah. do, making that decision. Because I feel like I feel like Carmela is the perfect Carmela, and Melfi's and, and Melfi's the perfect Melfi. Like if you had role reversed it, it wouldn't have been the same. Yeah, I, I can't agree. even imagine Richie Aprile as as the lead. Well, interesting about Richie though, he doesn't come out. He doesn't get introduced until the third episode of season two, which is kind of third. It's the yeah. third. It's mm. not next episode. Yeah. We talked about it. I mean, we're not going to say what happens to Richie or talk about what happens to him yet, but um, every season, the David Chase and his crew, they introduce one or two characters that we know are going to have bad outcomes by virtue of the fact that they're thorns in Tony's side. They gave Richie short shrift. But he comes in pretty hot. So He comes in <laughs> hot. He comes in really hot. He comes in quick, yeah. too. Yeah. And then I have one last thing as a homework for future episode viewing. Uh, during several episodes, there's a high-pitched squealing sound that can be heard in some of the outdoor scenes. And that's the sound of a elevated number seven train going around a turn one block from the studio where the indoor and some of the outdoor scenes are filmed in Queens, New York. It's Silver oh. Cup Studios? Yeah. So Interesting. I want to really cool. listen for that now. Yeah. Yeah, because all the interior shots of the house are actually not in New Jersey. They're in Long Island. Right. Fascinating. Much like when we run these podcasts, you have those ambient sounds that we've had to deal with when we were in downtown or... No, uh, oh yeah, that's Rooftop right. Rooftop parties. Downtown, the downtown studio had the florists next door rolling their You had the vipers and, and, and their parties. And then we had, the, we had a motorcycle club next door. This has been through many iterations. And today we've been on the Sunset Strip. We've been, it's been pretty quiet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll be back next week talking episode two, season two. That's it. Push logistics. <laughs>